Welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of The Reading Cure. In this episode, we'll be discussing the book Civilization and Its Discontents by Sigmund Freud. Welcome to The Reading Cure, where great books and great ideas are what we like to prescribe. My name is Dr. Stephen Davis, and my co-host is Dr. Alexander Fox. So in this episode, we'll be discussing Civilization and its Discontents by the iconic founder of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud. This short book, published in 1930, is a thought-provoking exploration of the inherent conflict between individual instincts and the demands of society. Freud delves into the depths of the human psyche here, revealing how our primal desires clash with the constraints of civilization. He contends that the pursuit of happiness is intricately linked with the suppression of these instincts, leading to a perpetual state of discontent. Through a psychoanalytic lens, Freud offers us profound insights into the perennial struggle for inner peace within the framework of modern society. Okay, Alex, so our first question about this book, Civilization and Its Discontents, was, so Freud is obviously making the, the claim here that the, the tool that we've created to relieve our suffering in life, I, you know, civilization itself, may have become one of the greatest causes of our suffering. So the first question really was, why might that be, and do you think he's right? Yeah, well, from my understanding, reading that short book, Freud's main argument for why it causes uh, suffering in some kind of way is to do with his notion of the pleasure principle, you know, that that idea that we're fundamentally hedonistic and we look for instinctual gratification. That is the core of our being. And in his in his view, civilization uh, protects us in, in, in some ways. You know, it, it allows us to have a more secure existence. But... The heavy existential penalty of that is that our instincts do not get gratified as much and as intensely as what we would in a more so-called primitive state of being. So it is this real trade-off that we we get to live or exist for longer, um, and there is some instinctual gratification, there is some pleasure, but it is not as intense or as direct as it would be in the, you know, state of nature, as he would see it. So I think that's that's what I took as his, you know, most fundamental criticism, uh, or at least his most fundamental point about the difficulties of civilization that it causes suffering in that in that regard. That we're more frustrated than what we would be otherwise. But on the other hand we do exist in a, in a more secure kind of way together, working together for common aims. Yes, I think that uh, really 
kind of captures it nicely there, Alec. I, th- I think you're right. I mean, obviously, to understand Freud's, perspe- Freud's perspective, um, this this point about the pleasure principle is key, actually, because, as you said, really for him, happiness, as far as he would define it, is just fulfilling our natural instinctual impulses in, in some capacity. So, um, as you said, you know, we, you know, the dangers that we face in that, you know, that could stop that happening, you know, illness, natural disasters, these, you know, these various things, mm. and also other human beings themselves, you know, obviously there's a degree of protection that, that comes from being in society. But but yes, I mean, obviously the price that's paid is a lot of these these desires simply can't be satisfied because they're of a, an antisocial nature in, in some capacity. So yeah, obviously for Freud, that is a problem for us. That will, will mean we, we experience quite a lot of frustration uh, or, or even more, you know what he would call, I guess, neurotic suffering within mm. that mm. within that society. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the that civilization is both friend and foe. Um, it is both an ally and an adversary in in his view. So, and and this also goes with that notion of the reality principle. Um, you know that we have to accommodate to reality uh, to some extent to get our instincts uh, satisfied yeah. but but reality has a somewhat antagonistic element because it, it, it is an obstacle to the satisfaction of our instincts and civilization itself is uh, you know allows us to satisfy but it also frustrates really so you know it, it, it's quite a nuanced point you know it's friend and foe really it's it's not one or the other and and i could imagine that for you know for quite a lot of people they would see civilization you know in terms of progress as a, an unmi- unmitigated good yeah really so freud was definitely going against that with maybe a more nuanced reading of what civilization is and what it does to us so, yeah. I I completely agree. I mean, I think it is nuanced because, I mean, if I'm reading him correctly, you know, obviously, as you said, you know, in terms of the reality principle, then that is, you know, where where the ego, the, the, the more self-aware, rational part of us can, to some extent, accommodate itself to delaying these gratifications or even renouncing certain ones. But, you know, on the basis of more of a long term or a, or a sublimated satisfaction, you know, where the desires are maybe, you know, they, they, they um, evolve into a different kind of satisfaction, maybe something like art yes. or, or, you know, and so on. But at the same time, so so we can get that through being socialised, which is to some extent positive, but there's also the point, isn't there, that if the socialisation is too severe or repressive, then in a way that reality principle stage is actually quite undermined you know, people end up with more, it's the, what he calls the superego part that's really dominating and persecuting actually. And the ego isn't as strong as it might have been under a better, under a more, a less punitive kind of socialization. Is that, I mean, I know. I I think, I think you're right that if, um, if the superego is, uh, is too punitive, then, then we have neurosis. And, and so there is an attempt to get, instinctual satisfaction through symptoms, you know, this more circuitous, roundabout route. And I think Freud would say that we would all be neurotic 
uh, to some extent, that the only people that weren't neurotic would be the ones that were outright psychotic. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. and, and, you, and you can see the antagonism between the pleasure and reality principles that is most stark in the psychotic, because the psychotic, according to Freud, is someone that has uh, renounced reality yeah. and has gone completely for wishful, you know, uh, delusional fantasies. So that that is um, the the tension between the two is most um, you know strong. But with neurosis, there is some accommodation to reality, but there is also accommodation to these instincts that can't be satisfied or even acknowledged, as you said, because of the superego. Yes. Um, there, so the superego won't really allow them to even be acknowledged and maybe diverted into a more productive form. So they come out more in this spontaneous, um, seemingly senseless way as symptoms. And it was part of the Freudian hermeneutic to interpret these symptoms and make sense of them. And, and that's what he attempted to, uh, attempted to do. Um, yeah, because I guess, I mean, obviously, the kind of, you know, the, the, the time he was writing in, you know, he, he kind of, I guess, he was born in sort of the Victorian-type era, of obviously not in the UK, but, you know, the kind of morality prevailing in Europe at that time, you know, much more puritanical, you know. So, obviously, he was seeing a lot of clients who, you know, had undergone a lot, you know, had really felt compelled to repress a lot of their instincts. And and this was, you know, what I guess partly influenced his view about neurosis, you know, these kind of particularly sexual instincts that were having to be renounced, well, or, yes, you know, propriety yeah. and so on. You know, so that obviously was leading to people coming to him with really severe superegos. And and of course, what happens, if I, if I understand him rightly, is that because they've also repressed their aggressive instincts as well as their sexual instincts, that this aggressive energy is what charges the superego, but is directed back upon themselves. You know, so they're they're quite in quite a tortured state actually by by this kind of level of of kind of socially imposed repression that they're having to to live with. Yeah, that 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 is right. Yes, yeah, I understood it too. That the the symptoms are a covert expression of the libidinal instincts. You know, for Freud, the paradigm instinct, the key instinct is eros, the sexual yes. drive. Everything else is somewhat understood, as uh, with the exception of aggression anyway. Uh, but anything that, that, like art and so on, and, and love itself, you know, more romantic love would be seen as a derivative of the sexual drive, and and this is maybe one of the criticisms we could make of Freud's view is that it does seem to be um, reductionistic. You know, it, it's libido and aggression; these yes. are the two, the the life and death instinct. Um, yeah. So, and and as you say, the the aggressive side is um, is redirected, or as Gestalt therapists would say, re reflected. You know, turned back on oneself, which creates this according to, to Freud, this punitive uh, you know, superego. So yes, we we don't get our sexual desires, you know, gratified in a direct way, yep. which causes frustration and may actually lead to symptoms, but also our innate aggression is not expended directly um and and can actually be turned back on the self and lead to this punitive superego with with quite persecutory guilt 
and so yes, it, I mean, it, it, yeah. it, it, it kind of creates this idea that the modern individual is uh, somewhat caged by civilization, you know, and and it's a cage that allows that you know the the human animal to exist longer than what it would, as he sees it in a kind of state of nature. Yes, but but it is also tamed and and sick really so it's a little bit like nietzsche i'm sure that that freud was heavily influenced by nietzsche yes um and would see i think he's influenced a lot by nietzsche in this idea that morality is a sickness and so i suppose this is leads on to what we were uh talking about or what you were asking originally and what we to what extent is freud right mm -hmm. and yeah. and i mean of course i think he has a point that um that you know that that we can be frustrated our drives can be frustrated that our aggression may not have you know directly expended as it would you know originally at least allegedly and that mm -hmm. can lead to this this sort of um persecutory guilt i'm sure most people feel that their inner critic as it's called now yeah. rather than superego is usually harsh so yep. i think that freud seems to be on quite solid ground when we look at uh why we might have a harsh you know superego or harsh inner critic yeah but i mean where there are problems i think in his account is is this assumption that uh happiness is pleasure that that really pleasure is the one thing that we're looking for <laughs> yeah and that, and that hedonism is entirely our innate nature um you know it seems to me to be overlooking um some things because you know he doesn't really talk about meaning you know like a meaningful life bro. yeah i mean i did not encounter that language at all in this book and i think in general um freud did not engage much with that and, and to be and to be fair if you read any modern philosophy book about meaning in life they make quite a sharp distinction between pleasure and meaning yeah because they're definitely not the same. I mean, we could think about meaningful lives, like say Kafka, Franz Kafka's life, you know, which was very creative uh, and meaningful uh, because he was a great artist, but he was quite miserable yeah. in many ways. Yeah. And so the the thing is that meaning, obviously, if if your life has meaning and pleasure, then you know that is greater than meaning and misery. Yes, but, but you know, Freud doesn't seem to acknowledge that one of the gains of civilization is that we could do fulfilling things that aren't always or even mainly meaningful. Um, you know, he yeah. would probably just see it as some kind of uh, sublimation, as he sees it, of the of the you know the sexual drive. You know, if somebody was involved in a moral cause, say, yeah. Yeah. which which might not be. Ple pleasant in fact it could be miserable but highly meaningful and yeah civilization does uh open us up to pleasure and meaning and that was something that i don't really think he saw and and my second main criticism i think is that you know when when we read civilization it's discontent so you, you know i don't know if you felt this but 
But, you know, so much of how Freud describes our psyche is what we've we've appropriated. You know, it's almost like the Freudian way of thinking about our psyches has just become part of the, the psyche's furniture. Mm-hmm. That, you know, the, it's not... Um, I'm sure when it first came out, that book, uh, and the Freudian revolution before it, that it would have seemed particularly striking. Now, some of it actually seems like common sense, yes. really. But I think, like, for me, where I see a real weakness in his account is uh, this notion that morality is something that is internalized from, you know, external to the self. It is what we appropriate, interject, as they say in psychoanalysis. Now, of course, things like moral rules and norms, we may just take them in from our culture yeah. and they become part of our superego. That definitely happens. But what, what he seemed to really overlook was that morality could be an integral part of who we are and that, you know, our moral being could be part of our integrated self. In other words, you know, there may be a conflict at times that everybody can recognize this, I'm sure, between what they want to do pleasure-wise and what they think is right. There could be a conflict there. Uh, What he's describing there is not unheard of, but he never seems to consider the cases where pleasure and morality confuse together or where the self may actually renounce the pleasure because morality is an integral part of who they are and not just something that they've had to submit to. You know, he's got this idea that that morality is a is a disease. It's something that we've succumbed to and we submit to. He doesn't see it as enabling enabling or potentiating or or a way of growing as an individual. Indeed, yeah. I mean, I think, as you sort of said earlier, I mean, because ultimately there is this reductionistic kind of assumption there where, you know, there is, there's eros, there's libidinal energy that he feels is, you know, anything higher as a sublimated form of that, then in a way that doesn't seem to really suggest there's any, you know, there's too great or significant value on these these higher interests that people have. You know, it's a sort of, um, almost it almost feels like a kind of consolation for something more instinctual that they would rather be doing that would be more pleasurable and obviously when you know his definition of happiness simply is the gratification of desires whether it be in a sublimated form or not so yeah i I agree i mean for me reading it and the absence of really really the issue of issues of meaning and purpose kind of coming into the discussion did seem like a bit of a glare and a mission and and yeah i mean obviously you, you know civilization does provide so many more opportunities for for meaning in that regard, you know. Yes, um, yeah. I mean, I think I think he's on quite this notion of sublimation. You know, he obviously had to, if he was going to talk about the primacy of uh, the libido, he had to explain um, humanity's artistic and scientific pursuits as uh, sublimations, you know, like a refinement of that sexual drive. Now, to me, I think this that this sounds highly contrived. You know, the notion that, say, Einstein coming up with his theory of relativity is a rerouting of his sexual drive. Yeah. Uh, how how you go from Einstein's libido <laughs> to the theory of you know contemplating the 
the theory of relativity and, and deriving, it seems like I don't know how you go from one quite to the other. And yeah. Freud never spells out in any credible way how that sort of derivation is meant to, to work. It has to work for his system, yeah. but it just seems highly contrived. Well, I mean, you know, again, I was thinking back to some of the people we've discussed previously, you know, like Sir Frankel and Maslow, who have, more, you know, the, the more kind of sense that there's this range of needs or in, uh, instinctual, you know, wishes to be satisfied that we have that are, you know, they're not, you know, there they, they are the more bodily, but there are others, you know, and, and I don't know why human beings having a bit more of a spectrum of higher and lower desire lower if you want to call that you know in terms of sexual desires all the way up to you know scientific thinking and so on i don't know why actually they need all be reduced to one particular underlying type of instinct you know no, but obviously I, I, that's i mean you know, he, he he obviously liked um he probably thought that the more that you could derive psychological phenomenon from uh, a number, uh, you know, a small number of fundamental, you know, forces, as it were. The yeah. more scientific it was, in a way, sure. you know, the more unified the theory. Because, uh, as as you would have saw yourself in that book, he uses the word science quite a lot. So he he yeah. did he did see psychoanalysis as a science, which is a rare thing to claim. Now, and of course, whether how much that invalidates psychoanalysis is a a big topic, and there's been quite a lot of debate about about that. But but Freud saw it quite straightforwardly as a science, and and I think that it was probably also his materialism. You know, this idea that the the mind is the brain, and the brain is part of the body. So therefore, the drives are influencing the mental because the mental is still part of the body. You know, so he had this um, materialist. Understanding of them uh, of the mind. In other words, he did not think that the mind was, in some regards, uh, categorically different to the body, and therefore one could be subsumed by the other. Sure, and and that's why you would see the drives influencing mental life in the way that that, that they did, and also because he he was a materialist, he he was focused on causes rather than purposes. So you know, like the people that you talk about, like uh, Maslow, yeah, and Frankel, they are people that believed that human intentionality, purpose, was fundamental yeah. to our psychology. Whereas Freud, in his materialism, uh, looked at causes. Um, so he didn't look at purpose really. It did not have a big part in his uh, psychological framework. And and that meant, as we've said earlier on, that he would downplay the role of meaning in yeah. life because meaning is about purpose. It's about uh, uh, you know teleology. It's not simply about cause and effect. Uh, but to acknowledge that would be to acknowledge a difference between the mind and the brain in a way, um, because most of the people that advocate a, a purposefulness to our psychology, do you see the mind as being different in some ways to the brain? I but, think so. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, one, you know, the, the, I thought the first chapter of this book is a little bit strange in a way because he starts off really with almost like a, a an answer to maybe a friend who's, 
mm. raised a question about his previous book, which was about religion. You know, so he begins the first chapter really talking about the the experience that some people have of a sense of kind of oneness with the universe. You know, and he and he's very keen to. I mean, he says he can't relate to it at all, but then he kind of wants no. to explain it away in terms of. You know, that's them regressing to a pre-ego state. But, you know, and, and again, there's quite a sort of mechanistic way of thinking there. I thought, yeah. you know, that, that that's just, you know, that really, that, I mean, obviously, you know, that, that's a whole other topic. You know, he's very critical of religion. That's something he really wants to, you know, make, make yes, clear that yeah. it's not, yeah. you know, he thinks, yeah. um, you know, it's not in keeping with reality as he sees it and so on. But, but no, yeah, he's quite, no. you know, those kind of, say, say like a kind of more, spiritual experience or sublime experience or whatever that you know i think it was a friend who's a poet was trying to suggest mm. you know gives a kind of the gives the the sort of religious urge in some people that kind of on a more felt level you know that was just mm. being chucked out you know that wasn't really um appropriate so as you said it's like there's a an over scientizing i guess a little bit here or yeah you know, i mean i think that's a, i think that's a good point i mean theodore reich who was uh in many ways uh uh, you know, a devoted disciple of Freud did say something very interesting about his psychology that Freud didn't even like music. Mm. And the reason that he didn't like music is that he didn't like succumbing to its power okay. without knowing why. Interesting. So, you know, you can see that when he talks about these oceanic experiences, you know, this dissolution of the ego temporarily. Yeah. Yep. That Freud, Freud did not have that or didn't even allow himself to have even an everyday experience of that. You know, like if you listen to music, that the, the, the ego boundary might be more expansive in those moments and you're and you're somewhat submitting to the power of the music, but Freud refused to do that. So he actually, you know, he was so much wishing to be in control, you could say, and to understand anything that was happening to him. Yes. You could see that such a person would not be open to that kind of experience. So when he says he's never found it in his experience, uh, it doesn't seem like if, if Reich is reporting it accurately that, that uh, Freud was going to be remotely open to that. In fact, he was rather defended against it. And it's interesting that obviously he's he's you know been acutely aware of the the discontentments and frustrations that come from being a kind of isolated individual in a big in a society that is not you know bending itself to the individual will. But I mean, obviously he's, he's actually overlooking a kind of you know one of many possible ways to alleviate some of that discomfort, which is a slight loss of ego in as you said music or other kinds of sublime type of experiences that would actually oh, indeed you know indeed and this goes to uh, a kind of third criticism that i had of the book which was that you know freud did see us as rather atomistic mm. innately yeah so the the ego is like this little island that initially has this narcissistic charge to it but eventually somehow Ex, you know, reaches out to other islands through the libido and forms these connections, but the connections are not primary. And this this was something that the object relations school of psychoanalysis, Melanie Klein, D.W. Winnicott, and so on, um, fundamentally disagreed with them. Mm. And I mean, now what we know about babies and attachment, it's clear that you know from the beginning. 
that we are very much interrelated and connected to other people profoundly. You know, even in the first weeks and months of life, we are not uh, some atomistic ego, yeah. um, as as Freud thought we were. And you might actually think then that when we look at the anecdote about his uh, problems with music, that there is the there is the danger that maybe Freud took his rather defended isolated ego, his adult defended ego, and interposed that back on, you know, how it would be, uh, you know, in the first stages of life, mm. and just assumed that we were more shut off and defended than what we are in reality. Yes. And and this goes this goes to how we then look at civilization, because if you see our origins as being somewhat walled off, then, you know, reaching the point of interconnectedness is a bit of a slog, and in some ways uh, there is a kind of renunciation of it. You know, the ego has to renounce its sovereign individuality and power, as Freud saw it. And so civilization then takes on a bit of a problematic tinge. It becomes something that is a in some regards, a necessary evil. However, if you're like, if you see it more from that object relations school, we are right from the beginning, particularly with our mothers when we're babies, there is this profound connection that influences our very being. Then civilization is 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 kind of there in its in it, in its raw form. That's the, true, and yeah, society of two. Yeah. Yep, but but not one in which we are necessarily feeling alienated or distinct. No. actually, but one. That, yeah, I think that's. No. And and I mean the thing is that, as a general rule, you know, this is something that they discuss in philosophy more than psychology. But it is something that psychologists have to keep in mind when they're forming their theories, which is that if you've got what you know a certain kind of thing, and you're trying to explain how it you know, developed, you know, from its origins, you can't really explain it, the origin has been fundamentally different. In other words, if we evolve into the these intersubjective, connected adult beings, hopefully as mature as we can be, you can't really start off with this walled off, isolated ego, you know, because it's not then clear how one becomes the other. Whereas if you see it in that object relations way, you can see the continuity, the evolution. And I think that's the more credible way. To yes, I think so. I mean, well, I mean, for example, in the book, obviously he talks about love, you know, as one of the, you know, he, he looks briefly early on at the various strategies that, that people use to try to, you know, find some kind of happiness within civilization. And, he, and you know, at love, obviously, of another person. He kind of describes it as this kind of anomalous experience whereby in that specific instance somehow they don't put their own ego first you know it's and it becomes about another person but that doesn't really quite fit very well with the rest of the theory in a way but i guess that as, as you were suggesting there is because he he has this kind of automaton you know a slightly automaton view of what we are and how we form and then of course suddenly you know love for another person would seem quite a strange thing to just suddenly manifest from that but well, um exactly. but yeah exactly. rather and, than... and, and I mean and I think this um 
relates to something that Anthony Starr, I know we did his book on solitude, but he wrote yeah. he wrote a book called um, Feet of Clay about gurus, and there was a chapter on Freud. And uh, one of the things he said that was insightful about Freud is that Freud could not relate to, to anyone and his opinion as an equal. He either had to be above them as, as a mentor or guru, or he was like with Fleisch, you know, quite subservient and mm -hmm. submissive yeah. and deferential. So there is that thing that even as great a psychologist as Freud was, that that if Storr has a point, it may not be that Freud on a consistent level felt that uh, equality. And therefore his view of love could be, well, ordinarily you're focused on yourself, but in love you know, mysteriously, you're focused on someone else, yeah. and it's almost like a self-forgetting. But I think, like mature love, would be a give and take. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so it might be the case that his psychology influenced how he looked at love too. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um. I think. I think so. I think so. I think. I think that's the thing about this book, in a way, is that uh, you know, on the one hand, I mean, he acknowledges this himself. Some of what he says is quite. You know, now seems quite commonsensical. Some of the points about an overly severe, say, upbringing and how that can, you know, and these kind of things all seem pretty reasonable. But you know, within all that, he's kind of brought in quite a lot of his own kind of underlying assumptions and and actually his personality as well, uh, from what you're describing. That kind of just makes some aspects of it seem a little bit out there, whilst others seem, you know, like about the idea about delaying gratification and becoming, you know, your conscience becoming a bit more, your sort of your. Consciousness, your ego being being more able to sort of, you know, seek goals, you know, be more in tune with reality. These kinds of things. That's all actually quite fine. But but yeah, there is a lot of other other stuff going on here that seems a little bit more hard to quite fathom. Um, and obviously, yeah, you know, yeah, and, and there does seem to be a stoical element to Freud. You know that he, um, you know, as I said earlier, with his response to music you know, that he did not want to submit to anything that he didn't fully understand. And mm. and so there, there almost seems like a compulsion to to know what, what what is the case, you know, what is reality, to understand things as they are, you know, the reality principle. Yes. Um, and so the, it, it does seem like it, there was almost a, a greater renunciation of, of pleasure in some ways. Um, I mean, the music antidote illustrates that somewhat, but uh, Reich also said that uh, Freud wasn't sexually active after his early 40s because he thought he should redirect mm -hmm. the libido to uh, sublimated pursuits, i.e. his own research. But for us that, that, that are a bit wary or critical of that notion, it does seem like quite a severe renunciation of pleasure, ironically. Yeah. Um, Exactly. Yeah. I mean, given that he's he, well, indeed. I mean, it's like he's writing a book about these inevitable discontentments that you know civilized living will bring, but at the same time, he is deliberately pushing away certain more you know possible remedies. Some of them kind of obvious, like we discussed before about the music and the oceanic experience. You know, there's a lot of things being ruled out, and and again, why actually being so sublimated and in touch with the reality principle. Is a, is a better way to live, actually, given his own assumptions about our primary 
pleasure seeking you know why actually that yeah. you know that doesn't quite make sense to me actually why to take such a severe you know kind of stance no. on that one but um it's, and i mean yet, and yet he did and and i mean yeah. i think also that what i would say about this reality principle is that okay i could understand why he would wish to highlight that there could be a conflict between what we wish and what is the case i mean that is a a fundamental psychological distinction you know that, that anybody that wants to participate in a society uh should have that you know what you wish for and what may be the case in reality may not correspond it is something that an adult has to recognize in comparison um to you know a young child in some ways but when he calls it a, a reality principle it almost seems like um that he's not acknowledging that well who says what is reality you know yeah and so that there is a kind of obfuscation really there because then he then gives us a sense of what reality is according yeah. to freud yes yeah, so uh, <laughs> and, and it seems quite seamless and organic but actually you know any any notion of reality is going to come with umpteen assumptions yes <laughs> with it. but he makes it seem like um that reality is something that is there just to confront it's it's there in front of your eyes you know that that there is no god you know that that uh, religion is just uh bogus you know that that is his notion of confronting reality yes yeah but whether he's right or not there are competing accounts of what reality is, and he, he hasn't really contended with them. No, indeed. Exactly. I think that's it. He's, he really has just simply asserted a view there. Uh, certainly not in this book. I mean, obviously, he's written the, the previous book. Mm. I, I can't remember the, the title of it, but it came out a couple of years before Civilization Its Discontents, and it was about... Was it something about an illusion, the history of an illusion or something like yeah, that? But yeah, it was the future of an illusion. Future of an illusion, that was the one. Yeah. And you know, obviously that, you know, you know, he's maybe made more of the argument against religion as he sees it there. He, he obviously in this one talks uh, you know, he kind of equates it to the wish of a child to have, you know, the protection of the father, you know, when they realize the dangers of the world and, you know, kind of creating a sort of fantastical father and the idea of a god and so on. But yeah, he's he's obviously very disparaging of it and just sees it as utterly inconsistent with as you said the reality principle as well he, i think he's it. yeah i mean yeah. Th this i mean this this is a, a side topic but what i would just say um regarding the issue of uh you know the human father as the prototype for for god you know the christian god obviously freud as a humanist and atheist would see it that way around whereas the christian i would assume sees the human father as in the image of their god you know what i mean the other way around and so the the thing is that it could be interpreted in different ways and so the the, the fact that we the the father and the god are seen to relate does not necessarily mean that we took one you know that we did it in the way that freud suggests it no, indeed, and, and nor nor I mean, obviously, he's making the contention that for your average person, as he would have seen it, you know, that's what a god is, as a sort of imaginary superpowered father. But I mean, that's not necessarily how you know any religious you know person might actually be seen. I mean, that that's one. It might be true yeah. that some do, but I mean, that is a bit of a bold, a bit of a sweeping. Well, judgment, it is, you know. 
Well, it is. And I mean, as you know, we'll be covering Mortimer Adler's book, uh, How to uh, Think About God, I think it's called. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, when it covers, obviously, the the topic of God as a concept, the, the, the idea of the father doesn't cover everything about the conception of a god yeah you know because we don't we don't see omnipotence as a quality of the human father sure so, yeah indeed so i mean again i think that because freud being a great psychologist and and you know the the, the first really modern psychologist as we would see understands he psychologizes things yeah and, and he, he was not someone that had much of a much of a temperament it seems for philosophy and so maybe he did like schopenhauer but overall he didn't seem to have much a stomach for philosophy from what i've read so he doesn't seem to understand that the concept of of a god is is more complicated than this notion of the father really yeah um and 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 even even if that concept is misguided which is another issue whether it is or not the qualities that that uh, are traditionally seen as characteristics of God. It's hard. Some of them are harder to psychologize than than others. You know, yeah. with the family, anyway. Yeah. terms of you know maybe where he was on yeah. you know a little bit safer ground as we would see it i wonder you know the second question we were going to look at was you know he he, he really emphasizes in this book the problem of guilt and um, which he sees as a consequence of the repressive influence of civilization on individuals so i'm wondering how how did he understand this process whereby there's this widespread toxic guilt that people are struggling with um within civilized society and is there anything that could be done about that yeah well from what i can gather in in this book itself that he describes the formation of the super ego in two kind of ways the first one is that um the young child craves and needs the authority figure the parents love and the the authority figure is to some extent seen as this punitive aggressive figure yeah and what the child does is it rejects takes in identifies with this authority figure in order to maintain this this bond you know in order to get love yeah um so you know the aggression of the superego according to this first explanation uh is to do with it is like imported aggression from the 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 father figure in the main Mm -hmm. that's taken in and that becomes the superego so that's the first explanation the second one uh that he says is that um the child will have aggression towards that parental figure towards that authority figure uh it identifies with the the superego um as a way of keeping that love but the aggression of the superego initially is the aggression that that comes from the frustration uh that the authority figure imposes on the child so it's like the child's own aggression heard against itself yes 
Um, so, and he does not think that these two explanations are contradictory or competing. He kind of sees them as one and the same. In, in other words, the superego is uh, both an identification with the parental figure and also one's own aggression turned against oneself. Yeah. And am I right in saying so? You know, the consequence of this process then being that, um, you know, when the superego, this is, it almost becomes like a sort of internal monitor that will, will generate yeah. condemnation, you know, which we'll feel as guilt or fear even. Um, when it not only actually when we act in a way that is contrary to how we feel we should be acting, you know, according to yeah. the, the standards that we're trying to follow, but actually simply even having thoughts about acting badly will generate guilt and fear as well, actually. So it could become, or at least a very strict superego in, in people who've really, whether it's internalised these ex, these values or, or really turned their aggression on themselves, well, yeah, we'll have this superego that is really constantly keeping them in a state of guilt and fear, actually, just because of wishes they might have rather than anything they've actually done. Um, mm, mm. So, Yeah, I mean, this is one of the, one of the sort of... Um, downsides to civilization as Freud sees it, because as you say, the superego uh, punishes uh, the ego for even uh, desires or yeah. wishes uh, that might never be actually enacted in reality. So it is different to an external authority figure, uh, because an external authority figure can only really punish you, you know, for what you've done, for the deed. You know, because it, an external authority figure does not know what you're thinking or feeling or wishing yes. in a way that your superego does. But the superego punishes us as much for the the wishes for the deed, yes. really. So in that way, it is uh, very strict. Um, I mean, the thing is that, you know, modern psychoanalysts, they, they kind of see the Freudian superego as a, as a persecutory superego rather than a reparative superego. And we can get on to that. In, in a minute, I think one of the reasons why it is, well, maybe even the main reason why the Freudian superego is harsh is not only because of the aggression redirected against the self. You would know that Freud would typically give an instinctual, you know, an explanation in terms of instincts. Yeah. Um, but I think another main reason why it is strict is that it does not really deal with moral reasoning. You know, the superego, the, the, the Freudian superego is not actually an, a moral entity in, in the more mature sense. It does not really morally reason. And a big give, giveaway of that is that Freud, um, and this shows how, shall we say, how impoverished his idea of guilt is, is that he, he equates guilt with social anxiety. Right. Yeah. So, in other words, the superego is saying this wish is going to lead to an outcome that alienates you from other people, people that matter to you. Now, that could be your family, that could be the wider society, and therefore you can't do it. And also, you're bad for having that wish. Yeah. But it is social anxiety. It's not really saying it's wrong if it if it alienates you from the 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 crowd. Yeah. As it were. But that is not moral, actual moral reasoning, because you can think about scenarios where um, 
say, for example, if you were a German in Nazi Germany, and you were tempted, to, if we may use that language <laughs> in that scenario, you were tempted to help a Jewish person out. Your superego could be clamping right down on that, saying how terrible you are as a person. Not because what you were going to do was wrong, objectively speaking, but because it's thinking about that social anxiety, that, that sense of being estranged from the crowd, which in that era would have been uh, Nazi Germany. You can see then that it's not fundamentally correlated with actual morality but it is it is it's it's the morality of what is done yes you know norms i mean it's in uh, yeah absolutely yeah i think you're right i mean because he he mentions at one point that you know in his analytic work you know a common um treatment you know uh, as he might you know that you'd have to to work with patients on would be trying to lessen the severity of their superego yes, so he obviously yes. recognized this is a problem but that it is interesting isn't it, that there's no sense that this can become a more as far as i can tell and reading a Freud, you know, there's no way this superego can kind of mature, you know, and almost like, it, you know, in the way that the reality principle can maybe, you know, a person can actually become a bit more attuned to reality and, and the the way that they gratify their wishes, you know, can they become more attuned to reality and, and perhaps more formulate their own moral elements to this superego, you know, so that it becomes more like a conscience as people kind of traditionally understand it. But I'm not really yeah. seeing any great possibility for that here it just seems to be this no it didn't it didn't seem to be the case and yeah. you know somebody like winnicott spoke about a personal superego okay so a personal superego would be um you know moral principles that you actually believe in and that you actually think are, are good principles to follow and it would also be um your own norms to some extent. In other words, Winnicott was allowing for there to be an objective morality, a morality that human beings are wired, so to speak, to honour and helps them to grow as people, and also that we can have our own standards as well, because, you know, as, as you know, Winnicott was very much a man that uh, espoused the importance of play, which is also to do with art, for, for example, you know, or art in the main. And art would be also about cultivating your own individuality. So with Freud, you haven't got the sense of an objective morality and you haven't got the sense of, um, you know, your own standards that allow you to become your own person as well. Sure, yeah. Yeah, it's a real bind. Why is he impoverished? Indeed, yeah. Well, I mean, and I'm just kind of wondering, because obviously he is, you know, he, he, is, he is seeing this, guilt you know this kind of phenomenon you know you know part of the discontentment of of civilized life this kind of all pervasive guilt that people are struggling with and he and he's you know and he suggests and i think that i mean there's there's a quote here actually he says when an instinctual trend undergoes repression its libidinal libidinal elements are turned into symptoms and its aggressive components into a sense of guilt so i mean do you think essentially this He's, he's overstating the degree of guilt that's going on out there, actually. I mean, aside from whether his, his, his conception of the superego is quite plausible, you know. Well, it, I, think, <laughs> I think that might be a bit difficult to discern because, um, you know, Freud, as you would expect, um, uh, you know, espoused this idea of an unconscious sense of guilt. Okay, So yeah. for Freud you could have a conscious sense of guilt, you know, the pain of having done something wrong and you're aware of it, 
But he, he also had this view that you might not consciously feel guilty, but you have an unconscious sense of guilt, and that may lead you to doing things that are counterproductive as a form of punishment. Now, I mean, I, it does seem credible to me that you can have an unconscious sense of guilt. Uh, and, and, of course, you know, you might, you might think, well, you know, the unconscious sense of guilt, well, how strict is that superego to have that sense? Um, and, and, and it seems to be, as far as Freud's concerned, that if you've got a particularly strict punitive superego, you're more likely to have an unconscious sense of guilt, actually. Um, that it might, you know, almost like some of it can't even be consciously contemplated because it's so painful. Sure. Um, so when you say how how much do we feel guilt, I think you hear about the inner critic a lot in therapy. That would be a harsh superego. And then if there is such a thing as unconscious guilt, then yes, I, I think it is quite going to be quite a pervasive phenomenon, but because he doesn't acknowledge that there is also conscience, um, in that regard, he will underestimate the degree of guilt, because he's not actually uh, recognizing that there are other kinds of guilt. You know, there's punitive guilt, which is not authentic conscience guilt. Yeah. Um, so in that way, he downplays. Mm. That, that guilt. He actually underestimates that guilt because he doesn't recognize or discuss its existence. Um, I mean, you, I, I think I think obviously for Freud, and you know, we'll, won't go into it in any great depth because it's about him and religion, but I think you know that he probably felt that if we start acknowledging that there's an objective morality that humans want to uh, align themselves with that that could be getting into for him dangerous territory you know into you know uh, because all you know one of the arguments for a god is the is the existence of objective morality sure. now that's another issue altogether but i think you know if he saw us as animals with our instincts and then we had these instinctual explanations for for guilt we don't have to really deal with objective morality, but then, you know, if you don't see that, then you're downplaying conscience guilt, you know, yeah, authentic yeah. guilt, which I think does exist too. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so you, you know, his his sense of, you know, obviously, you know, coming from the his role in the, the therapy room that he was encountering guilt a lot. It's interesting that 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 may be true, and it may be partly true for the reasons that he was putting forward. But yeah, maybe. Um, in a sense, the, yeah, there were other explanations for this guilt that don't quite fit into the into the system. Yeah, but I think he was kind of holding to uh, an inconsistent position because um, I remember reading uh, that Wright had said that uh, he had discussed some matter with Freud, and Freud had said to him, "I didn't know that you had such a rigid superego," you know as an observation, because Freud, you know, understandably thought that a rigid superego was not a healthy uh, psychological entity, yes. you know, yeah. uh, what it, you know, that what it would do to the psyche. Um, but the thing is, if you start talking about 
a rigid superego is a problem, then you, you've got to think about a healthier version. And I don't really know how you posit a healthier version without thinking about a conscience and a more authentic, objective morality, yeah, true. to be honest. Yeah, you're right, exactly. I mean, I suppose, yeah, that given the, the irrational kind of superego that Freud is suggesting and the, obviously the desirability for individual happiness, for people to actually just lower its demands, well, does that mean that it's just un, unchecked egotism is the alternative? You know, well, exactly. I mean, who, I mean, you know, surely you would not have um, believed that, uh, you know, a, a, a superego that was lax or non-existent was an improvement because I mean that's what psychopaths have. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, I, or or people that are what we would call hedonistic in the pejorative sense, and the idea that that was then something that therapy would take you to—that can't be a, a, a. To my mind, that cannot be a legitimate, credible therapeutic aim. And you know, in fact, and to be fair, actually, you know, because you know his views on aggression, you know, I think at another point in the book he, he describes aggression, human aggressiveness, as the greatest. Um, you know, risk to others, mm. the, you know, the greatest argument for civilization, you know, it is a bit of a diabolical bind he has us in here because obviously a superego is needed to contain that aggression. But, it, you know, by its very nature, it's it's a, it's a pretty unpleasant and guilt-inducing entity that we have to then live with for the sake of everybody else. So, you know, that I mean, again, obviously, discontentment with a capital D, really, if that's the well, bind is. that we're in, it really. Yeah. Well, it is. and And... As as we were saying, you know the the idea that a more lax superego is a is is the model of health is a bit questionable. But then it might be possible that that Freud just thought that it wasn't really an ideal, but more just a resigned alternative. I, a bit I, like how you said therapy was taking you from neurotic misery to ordinary unhappiness. Yeah. Well, I, I, it seems like that. I mean, I think, you know, he's, he's, he's depicting a kind of trade-off, I guess, between individual happiness and social cohesion mm. here. And so, yeah, I suppose if you went to the one extreme of individual happiness and in this kind of conception, you've just abandoned the superego and, and, and any kind of social restraint. So from yeah. an individual point of view, well, it's like that's like how he is, as far as I can see, depicting happiness. But again, that doesn't necessarily sound like a terribly happy place to be, as you said. I mean, you no, might be a sociopath, you know. Yeah. No, and I mean the the thing is that you know Freud in his own life uh, could be you know particularly moral uh, in some regards. Anyway, we know, for example, that he turned down his nephew's offer, you know, Edmund Bernays, you know, had yeah. offered him to write some article to make a buck. Yep. And that was antithetical to how Freud, you know, looked at things that, of course, he wanted to make a bit of money, but he was not capitalistic to that degree, really. So again, is he saying that this was just some norm he was following and his superego uh, that didn't have any objective legitimacy? Mm. I doubt it. Yeah. Absolutely. Really. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, to me, I can't really believe that any credible model of psychological maturity makes out that happiness is disregarding <laughs> our yeah. impact on others. I think it has to include that. I, yeah, I mean, I, 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 yes, I, I, I absolutely agree. For our own happiness, too. Yes, exactly. Um, I exactly. find that hard to 
to to believe really or if that's what he thought i don't think that's the case I, it doesn't it doesn't sound like that was how he lived his life as you said so it does seem a little bit like no he was quite he... principled in some ways, yeah. um really there so I wonder then, because I, I mean, obviously, there's a link. The, the next question we're going to talk about kind of follows on from that one, actually, because he, you know, he's at one point he brings up, you know, that again, the AG was in the the communist, you know, perspective hmm. on society was obviously kind of in the air, and um, you know, we'd obviously the Russian Revolution would have happened prior to this book and so on. Um, he, you know, he's he's critical in the book of what he would see as the kind of psychological naivety. Of, of, mm. of the communist view about what civilization should become. He doesn't share, you know, the kind of Rousseau-like view, you know, the kind of, no. you know, idealized view of pre-civilized man. So, you know, the question really was, what do you infer from this book then, according to Freud, is, is kind of the right amount of civilization that's actually good for us? Yeah, well, the, the when I read the book, particularly near the end, I got the impression that, that Freud kind of saw civilization a bit like um, that, you know, how he conceived our own individual happiness. You know, this idea of moving from neurotic misery to, um, uh, you know, ornery unhappiness. I didn't, I didn't really think that Freud believed that there was a sweet spot. Mm. You know, in other words, you know, an ideal degree of civilization. I didn't get that impression at all yeah. from his book and and from what I've read of him otherwise that he thought that i thought i think he would probably think there would be a degree of civilization that would be adequate in some ways but i you know there's no notion of thriving no uh, in this psychology you know that would seem uh quite alien to how he talked about us and thought about human nature it's not about thriving. So I don't think there is a sweet spot when it comes to civilization. I mean, actually, at one point in the book, he, near the end, I think, he, he says that, you know, for those people that are very pessimistic and have the view that civilization isn't worth its salt, he mm -hmm. says he would listen to them without bridling. So <laughs> it's almost as though, yeah, you know, he's not saying that, that that's his own position, but it's not so it's not something that he is he doesn't see any cogency to. So I yeah. think I think the thing is there is a deep pessimism there. I, I think he was illustrating the the problems as he saw it with civilization, maybe to, to just highlight um why we can't really have that happiness and at least we can then understand it. I mean, that could be a consolation, at least for the Freuds of this world, who, um, you know, value understanding so much. Yes. Uh, but how much it's a consolation for others, I don't know. I think he would agree it wouldn't be for many. That yeah, perspective, well, you know. it's, it's a very good point, though, because, I mean, just trying to kind of, yeah, unpick his view. I mean, it's, it's like on the one hand, he would, you know, Rousseau obviously talked about the corruption of of, of certain kinds of civilization and how, you know, and, and again, you could see, well, yeah, Freud could kind of go with that, but he didn't, he, he was more a Hobbesian in terms of what the state of nature yeah. was like. So, you know, he had a, so, you know, it's, 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 it's like it's bleak in both directions, really, you know, because obviously individual gratification being, I suppose, synonymous with happiness, 
but yet in creatures that are very aggressive by nature mm -hmm. just means a horror show in, in an uncivilized environment but but yeah <laughs> or a tremendously repressive guilt-ridden kind of unhappiness of another form in a, in a civilized environment so yeah it, is, it does seem it does seem pessimistic and i think you're right i mean he does i mean he says that as you like you said towards the end he says he's not got any solution he's not really going to speculate on the future and you know he just kind of sees it more as like a tug of war i guess between the kind of pro individual egotistical kind of urges manifesting people and then the more pro social controlling forces trying to keep them in check but but again yeah. the, the, you know the the human being being pulled between these two hasn't really got a great you know a great prospect in either way actually so yeah you're right it's yeah. like there is a he is kind of implicitly suggesting a sort of compromise is, is all we can really have you know a sort of civilization to a degree but it's not a very affirmative uh compromise really you know it's a sort of best of a bad lot maybe it's like that's what he's kind of saying well yes i mean i think that you know he's saying that if um we were in that state of nature that we could have intense pleasure but our lives would be very transient um yeah. whereas if we're a part of a civilization then uh, our lives are extended but they may become more existences yes yeah um and yep. i think <laughs> so that i think that that was my sense of what his position was and I think it is, yeah. and and so you know he's, he's agreeing with rousseau that we're in chains but he's saying that that's the that's the best game in town really <laughs> is to have those chains in a, in a way and that there's not going to be flourishing thriving or any sort of actualization you know as the Basler school yeah would see it. yes uh, that and and he says he's not going to be a prophet he's in other words he is not going to espouse some kind of utopia that no. we're heading towards and you know i mean it's it's not as though you know his perspective is totally wrong um, no, no, no. I, I, again i get the sense with freud that he is such a you know he idealizes the reality principle so much that it may mean that he sees the more pessimistic something is the more realistic it is mm. if you see what i mean it yep. might be that he almost fetishizes the, uh, the the pessimistic because he thinks that anything that is bleak and sober must be true <laughs> i think so well it's funny i've got that quote here that you just alluded to and again it is it's got a real kind of poetic flourish to it because he says i have not the courage to rise up before my fellow men as a prophet and i bow to their reports reports that i can offer them no consolation for at bottom that is what they are all demanding the wildest revolutionaries no less passionately than the most virtuous believers mm -hmm. so there is a kind of he's taking you know there's a sense he's quite enjoying the bleakness actually in terms of i can't give you anything you know other than sober reality here yes <laughs> as yeah you, as you... i think that that's the thing yeah the yeah. more sober and the more bleak it is uh the the, the more it's true in a way yeah. this, this idea that truth is pain really and and i think that you know if you see reality as this antagonist to uh you know the instincts as he does 
then you can sort of see why reality is pain in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, but I think it contaminates and and distorts some of his reasoning in 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 that. I have yeah. to say that when reading it again, that there was this um most astonishing oscillation, you know, between um him, you know, when he was talking about certain things, he would talk about them with a degree of reserve, he would be equivocating, he would say it might be this, it might not be that, or it could be this up to an extent. And then other times it, it swerved into certainty. Yes. <laughs> um, yep. And and this might be the sort of psychological poles that that Freud oscillated from, you know, from a kind of, uh, you know, uh, considering all these different possibilities, being very reserved to being very much an advocate. Yeah. At other points, it's interesting. Um well, yeah, I mean, I think that's right. The, the, you know, I don't know if he, it really struck me the part where you know he, he has a little bit. I don't want to say a rant, but he kind of he talks about about you know the the kind of Christian man, you know, mantra, love thy neighbor as thyself, and he and he and he wants to you know highlight what he thinks of as the absurdity of that statement, being mm. commanded to love your neighbor. You know, your neighbor might not be a very nice person, but mm. he kind of to me, you know, I would imagine most people would interpret that that statement as meaning you know, love your neighbour in a kind of more understanding way. You know, it would be the sort of idea that you'd recognise your neighbour as a fellow suffering being and you you take that into account in your dealings with them. You know, the love, I mean, maybe that's not the, you know, in terms of what how, uh, you know, those words were originally meant, love thy neighbour as thyself. But I think, you know, people would probably make a case for it being a more, you know, you could almost translate it as, you know, have empathy for your neighbour as a fellow suffering creature. Well, you know. Uh... Yeah, but I think I think it can be interpreted that way. I think originally in the Christian sense, it, it's not about empathy, but more love. Yeah, and okay. And Lacan, he actually said that you know because he must have agreed with Freud that it should be hate the, thy neighbor as thyself. Right, okay. <laughs> um, but I think I think that you know what, um, and this is something that Reich wrote about in his book on masochism as well. I think what Freud was uh, saying there is that love thy neighbour as thyself is not something that really accords with our psychological reality. Yes. And and, and I think um and there have been there have been, you know, philosophers that have argued that you know you can't really choose to love. <laughs> so this idea of choosing to love others yeah. doesn't quite add up but i think i think if you were going to be giving it its um its base profile showing that you yeah. would be saying it's approaching people in a spirit of generosity and openness and empathy yeah um yeah. but again you know only to to some extent and i think also freud did make the stupid point that that you know it somewhat waters down the co conception of love um, you know, because yes. the people that you do love, can you really say that you would want to to love others, your neighbor, just intrinsically in the same way? So there can be a devaluing um, there as well. I think he was right about that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think so. I think, yeah, in that sense, it, it's true. I mean, it's, it's easy to kind of, you know, point out that you know if, if love is just you know interpreted in that you know kind of way then yes of course you know that is that's that doesn't seem a very likely scenario so yeah 
I mean, obviously, his you know it, it does kind. Of, it's like a bit of a sort of straw man argument in favour. His kind of more, you know, we're more aggressive creatures. How could that possibly well, make exactly, it? You know, yeah. exactly because um, because that maxim speaks about love, and that doesn't seem quite a credible way to approach dealing with acquaintances or neighbours. It, it seems a bit too. Um, too positive, you know, and unrealistic. That yeah. then, yes, it is a straw man argument for him. Um, but yeah, he doesn't consider that, you know, healthy human beings do want to connect. Yeah, and they yeah. do want to see other people um, as their fellow creatures. You know that that sense of uh, community. Yeah, he does not think about that. It doesn't seem to exist for him. Yes. Uh, so yes, he he quite shrewdly picks something that he knocks down, and then uses that as an argument for, um, you know, why we're more aggressive adversarial beings. A bit a bit like this sort of view that Pinter would have had, you know, in his plays anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> you don't true. really get love thy neighbor as thyself in Pinter either, don't we? <laughs> no, no, that's that's for sure. Yeah, um, yes. So <laughs> I, I, again, it. it yeah, I mean, but I do think there is more fellow feeling for others than what than what he believes, um, you know, than what Freud makes out. I, I think so. Yeah, I think maybe yes. Yeah, a, a statement like that, you know, a kind of more a more middling take on it, you know, would maybe be the kind of what would be more typical. You know, people might more not moderate, be yeah. shocked by by the claim, or at least yeah, see a point to it, although. Yeah, I mean, there is a problem, obviously, if it's just taken as literally as, you know, love your neighbour as much as you love yourself, your partner, you know, the you know the most treasured people in your life, obviously. And that, you know, in that equivalent sense, that, that doesn't quite work. Yeah, and I, th I think another way in which that saying departs from psychological reality is that most people do not love themselves in any healthy way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So okay, this yeah. idea, you know, that it kind of makes out that we're loving ourselves in this beneficent way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't generally see that, um, and I'm yeah. not just talking about in the therapy room. <laughs> uh, and so again, you know, it, it's starting from this assumption that we have this beneficent love towards ourselves, which we can then also redirect towards others. That seems to be quite. Um, a rare idea. I'm not yeah. saying it's impossible, but it's not. Um, it's not common. Yes. No. 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 I think. I think you're right. <laughs> um, um, because most people don't love themselves. No. Well. No. Indeed. And I mean, as as we discussed earlier, in terms of the the prevalence of guilt and these other, you yeah. know, yeah. And well, I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I think Lacan <laughs> was intimating that with "hate thy neighbor as as thyself." <laughs> At least yes. that was closer to the psychological reality. I'm well, not saying it's what we should adopt, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, it does seem a little bit more plausible. You're quite right. Yeah. It does, it does, because I'm afraid self hate is more common in se than self love in a healthy sense. Uh, Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. We had initially hoped to cover a couple of more questions about this book, but unfortunately the recording time got the better of us on this occasion. But we hope you enjoyed the conversation that we had, and thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.